Anthony Fasano from the Engineering Management Institute here. And before we bring you this episode of the podcast, we want to let you know that like many people, the team here at EMI is concerned about the COVID-19 coronavirus. While there are many reputable news and medical sources out there to help you stay informed, here at EMI, we like to use our platform to keep you up to date on any news related to engineering projects, conferences, events, and so on. We will be posting this information as we receive it at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org forward slash COVID-19. Again, we will be posting COVID-19 information related to engineering as we receive it at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org forward slash COVID-19. That's C-O-V-1-9. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and also help them to succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we'll be talking to Amy Korn, who is a civil and structural engineer at Gannett Fleming. Amy will be talking to us about the structural analysis using finite element models and hydropower dam inspection. I'm your co-host, Alexis Clark. I'm a licensed professional engineer in Texas, where I work for Hilti North America as the product manager for the chemical anchoring portfolio. I have an undergraduate degree from the University of Texas at Austin. And I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. I'm a licensed engineer practicing on structural projects in California with an undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master's in structural engineering from UC San Diego. Before we get started, this is a free show and our sponsors help us keep it free, so please support them. I'd now like to recognize our first sponsor for this episode, ZA Consulting Engineering Services. ZA Engineering is a structural consulting firm located in Long Island, New York, and services projects throughout the Northeast. ZA Engineering specializes in working with existing structures, providing building inspection and evaluation services, and structural design for repairs, reuse, and remediation of existing building structures. ZA Engineering also provides design and evaluation of new and existing structures for installation of alternative energy systems, such as solar panels, and structural engineering services for new commercial and residential structures. Their goal is to find practical solutions that are mutually acceptable by stakeholders and involved parties. Contact them anytime for a free consultation on your next project. You can find them at www.consultz.net. That's www. C-O-N-S-U-L-T-Z dot net. Now I would like to introduce our guest for this episode, Amy Korn. Amy Korn has been a civil structural engineer with Gannett Fleming since 2015 and was involved in the opening of their Denver office. After graduating with her bachelor's from Seattle University, she made her way back to Colorado to attend Colorado State University for her master's degree and graduated with her master's in 2014. Her love of dams was discovered after landing an internship with the Geo Civil Group. She switched to a thesis-based master's focused on analyzing potential failure modes using finite element modeling of post-tensioned anchored concrete gravity dams. Her work has focused primarily on finite element modeling of existing concrete gravity and arc dams, potential failure mode analysis, also known as PFMA, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, Part 12D inspections, along with risk assessment and risk-informed decision-making, also known as RIDM. She currently serves on the Structural Engineering Institute Board of Governors after being appointed 
by the ASCE president-elect in 2018. Now we'd like to welcome Amy Korn to the Structural Engineering Channel podcast. Welcome, Amy. Well, hello, guys. Amy, your technical work has focused a lot on, on dams, as we read on the intro. Uh, you developed nonlinear models of uh, 40 to, I believe it's 300 foot tall arc dams. Can you talk a little bit about the structural engineering that goes into that? I never really thought a structural engineer actually had a role in the dam industry, which, you know, being in the industry for as long as I have now is kind of comical. But it wasn't until one of our good family friends introduced me to my now mentor at a conference going, he does what I think you want to do, which at that time when I was in grad school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And, you know, it opened up my mind to all of a whole new possibility of structural engineering lot of what I've done in my career so far is building finite element models of primarily concrete arch dams to evaluate the safety of them to make sure that they can survive floods and earthquakes. And so that involves both linear models, nonlinear models. One of the things that I think is really cool about the dam industry is that we don't have codes or standards. So we're not restricted like by like the International Building Code or ASCE 7, but we do have guidelines. And so that's where the structural side comes in is having an understanding of the mechanics and the basic principles to understand how the dams are behaving because we don't have codes to go back to. So that's one of the things that I think is really cool. But a lot of it is the structural analysis, checking the safety for floods and for earthquakes. I'm in the building design industry, and most of the typical design, what I find interesting about this is that, yeah, we do have codes, and it's not all the time, but sometimes it's follow the code, follow the code. Looks like what you're saying is, uh, similar to the building industry, it's, it's kind of like it's performance-based design where you're doing a nonlinear analysis model or a dynamic model. That's what I find really interesting because it is actually going back to the roots of structural engineering. You can't just rely on the code. You actually have to I guess, think a lot more. And I imagine that takes up a lot of time. You do. And it's, there's also the black box of the finite element models. And I think we can fall into a habit of just relying on what the model tells us as truth. And if you don't understand what you're putting into the model, it's really hard to understand what's coming out of the model. And so that is where, you know, your understanding of the basics and you know, the code can be helpful, but you've got to understand why things are put into the code in the first place. And so no matter what industry you're in, that's a huge part of it. My teachers and or professors in college always said, garbage in, garbage out. And I think that is very true for a lot of the work that I do with these both linear and nonlinear models. So Amy, I'm really actually fascinated to hear more about your take on finite element analysis and its place in uh, different types and applications of structural engineering. Hilti actually developed a software last year and launched it. And one of the main features is offered in this new software is that we have actually integrated finite element analysis to the base plate and the post installer cast in Anchorage. And I get asked all the time, you know, when is a good place for a structural engineer to be using this technology? And I am certainly not the expert. So I'm very thankful that we have you on today as you're the expert in FEA. You know, where are some of the places that you use this technology and that you find it most helpful? 
know, a lot of times we use the finite element when it's going to be something that's going to be way too complicated to do by hand. So a lot of times this comes in when we do large seismic events, if we do a time history analysis. The best place for us to always start is by hand and understand the problem and figuring it out, whether that be by hand calculations or by spreadsheets. But I think it does more harm to just jump right into the finite element analysis immediately because you don't have a handle on the problem and the questions that you're trying to answer. And I think that is one of the biggest downfalls of finite element modeling is it can be a black box. And if you don't understand what you're putting in, you're not really going to understand what's coming out. I think that's a recurring theme, you know, just talking to other engineers, even in other disciplines like uh, yourself and different specialties, it's always knowing or at least having an idea of what the answer should be before you start, you know, getting into the finite element analysis models and, and all that. We use those, but we kind of lay it out by doing like some simple hand checks. Or when I ask newer engineers, what do you think the rebar should be? Or does that look right? How do you know this model's does it look right in terms of detailing? And how do you know that model's right? Especially for the newer engineers, I try to have them have a, at least maybe a, a simple hand calc or a spreadsheet or do it on multiple softwares to make sure everything's checking out correctly. There's a lot of ways to check your work, but that's really important, especially if you're in a, a newer engineer that I would say, because that's when you kind of develop that intuition. So it's good to see, especially with finite element analysis, especially on dams, that that still is to go to. You still have to know your basics. And you brought up two points that I want to reiterate, the part of knowing what the answer should be and the intuition part. Hand calcs help you get that intuition and its experience. And I remember doing my first model, I forgot to put boundary conditions in and all of a sudden the dam has just moved all the way down the stream. And you know, that's not what happens in real life. I wasn't 100% sure what was going on, you know, as I progressed through that first model. But years later, you know, that intuition comes in and having a better understanding of, well, this is what the answer should be. The model's not showing this. So I wonder if there's something wrong with the model. I think that is something that I continually work on with each model that I develop. Amy, from what I understand, you've had the chance to inspect some of the largest hydropower dams in the country. The sheer scale of a hydropower dam already intimidates me because I'm afraid of heights. But I'm curious, can you kind of tell us a little bit about your experience and kind of what goes into a hydropower dam inspection? Inspection actually starts long before you get out into the field. And I'm sure this is the case with any other inspection, whether it be a bridge or a building. But you want to make sure you've gone through the drawings and previous inspection reports, even just previous analysis reports to make sure that you have a really good handle on, you know, is there something that the dam owner is monitoring? Is there something they're concerned about? So that's really the first step, at least for me in the inspection, is just getting a feel for what is going on with the dam, what are the concerns. So that all happens before you get out there. And then hydropower dams in the U.S. at least are regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. And so there is a very stringent process that actually goes along with hydropower dams and what needs to be done. And so a lot of what I've done is a part of the FERC Part 12 inspection. So that is going and checking all of the critical sections of the dam. That can be the spillways, the gates, um, penstocks, the powerhouse. We're looking at the concrete. We're looking at the concrete foundation interface. You're basically checking, are things behaving like you would expect them to? Circling back to, should I already know what the answers are? 
If there looks like there's something off in the field, it might be something you want to take a closer look at. So we get to go in the drainage galleries. So I've walked inside multiple dams uh, to check on the drains. You're looking for cracking of the concrete. You're looking for seepage. A lot of times if a gate or if a dam has a gate, you want to make sure that the operators know how to operate the gate, whether that be electronically, whether that be manually, um, in case an emergency happens and they have to open the gate themselves. You want to make sure that that is going to work during an emergency. And one of the other cool things is a reservoir rim inspection. And so what we're looking for there or for that is that there's no possible large landslide along the reservoir rim. And so one of the coolest inspections I got to do was we took a boat up the reservoir and it's about a 55 mile reservoir. So I spent the whole morning on a boat looking at the reservoir rim, which was really cool. Yes, hydropower is generating power. And as a structural engineer, I'm actually not looking at the generators. Uh, that is actually not one of my roles when I do the inspections. But we're just making sure the concrete, you know, is not cracked. Or if it is cracked, that it, it could be cracked, it could be spalled. Um, but, you know, documenting all of that as part of the inspection. So you were kind of talking about what you're looking for. And I just kind of want to tie this back into one of the technical things that we mentioned in your intro. You mentioned uh, there was a potential failure mode analysis, PMFA. Could you talk a little bit about that? Just because I'm curious with, I know for buildings, we have different failure modes, but what about for dams? It seems like it'd be a lot more complex and interesting, especially with all the different types of forces. It's actually interesting that you brought that back up because the potential failure modes are actually one of the things that are incorporated into the inspection. And so familiarizing yourself with the failure modes helps you identify what you're looking at during the inspection. And so the potential failure mode analysis process is actually designed to determine all the ways a dam can fail. And that may sound very doom and gloom, but if a dam were to fail, what could happen downstream could be so quickly. And so you want to make sure that you can identify all of the failure modes. And so this is super helpful in understanding how the dam functions. You know, it could help in developing the dam safety program. But, you know, going back to the failure modes themselves, so the process loosely described is you have the consultants, which is my role on the inspection. You have the dam owners. You often have operators in the room. And you're really just brainstorming, you know, an earthquake could come in and you could overstress the concrete, you could get a crack or the dam could slide and then you have a loss of the reservoir or you could damage a gate during a flood because the gates couldn't be opened and now they're overtopping and you can't even open the gates. And so you're really just looking at, from a very wide perspective, how can the dam fail? There are canned failure modes like with concrete you're looking at overstressing you're looking at sliding you know you have your steel gates you're looking at corrosion but this is all done very broadly and then you narrow in and you focus on the failure modes that you believe could actually develop at the dam and this can help you identify maybe there needs to be an analysis done of the dam to determine what its stability for a flood or an earthquake is or maybe we should be operating the gates in a different sequence so we don't scour out the river downstream. Or maybe you identify some surveillance and monitoring options to help reduce the risk or 
you know, maybe there's some type of instrumentation that you need, but the potential failure mode process is there to help you, really to help you understand the infrastructure and what could go wrong and what you can do to prevent it from going wrong. I love that description. I think you did a really great job of, of breaking down something that could otherwise be really complex, but I think this is no different than using, you know, LRFD calculations on a post-installed anchor. I mean, there's different considerations for each failure mode that may occur. And I think when you do this kind of analysis, it helps you think of the entire solution, whatever it is you're designing from a holistic standpoint and really looking at each aspect and how they interact with one another. So I think that that's really fascinating. Definitely. And I mean, you know, with the anchors you're looking at now, could it, there's all of the different ways that the anchor can fail and you're designing that away. And now we're on the other side of it of the dam's already there. Now, how could it fail? So it's, you know, two sides of the coin where, you know, a lot of these things could have been designed away had they've been identified before constructed. Whereas with your anchors, oh, totally. You know, the failure modes, you can design them away to the best of your ability. But yeah, definitely there is a relation there. That's awesome. Okay. So I think we'll give you a break because we've definitely grilled you on the technical side of dam models and FEA and the inspection side. So let's take a little bit of a breather. And instead, I'd like to understand a little bit about the importance of both written communication, like an email or technical reports, memoranda, and verbal communications, like presentations, phone calls, those two different skills that are so critical to not only the projects that you work on, but structural engineers in general. A lot of us engineers say we didn't get into this industry so that we could write reports. I definitely was one of those people. I had an English teacher in high school that actually told my parents at parent-teacher conferences that I would make a great technical writer for the government one day. And (laughs) the majority of my reports go to the government at this point. A lot of what we do as engineers is very technical and very complicated. And just explaining it to another engineer can be very difficult to convey our assumptions, to convey our conclusions. There's a lot of information that we've got to be able to communicate. As a lot of us are dealing with, whether it be a building owner or a city, you know, in our job, we're dealing with dam owners and regulators. And sometimes the dam owners aren't even engineers. And so we've got to convey this technical information to them in a way that they're going to understand it. And so being able to take your complicated 3D finite element analysis, your nonlinear time history results, and put that into terms that the client can understand and then make decisions on is huge. I think it's super important for engineers to be able to convey to both clients and regulators because they're the ones that ultimately have to make decisions on our work, whether it's the assumptions that went into our models, uh, the conclusions, or you know, if we're even making a recommendation because a dam owner needs to retrofit their dam, putting that in terms that they can understand, that is something that engineers can really strive to be great at. Okay, so to any of our young engineers specifically who are listening to this podcast episode right now, I encourage you. I think that Amy has made such a fantastic point. So I'm fortunate that most of my tenure with Hilti has been almost nothing but technical communication. And when you're young and you're just getting into industry, you maybe didn't appreciate that one single engineering communication course you took in your undergrad, or you may think that most of your career is going to be crunching numbers and doing analysis, which it will. 
But just like Amy said, it's so critical for us to be able to explain very densely technical, complex information to people who aren't engineers, who people who aren't technical, because at the end of the day, we aren't always the ones who have the ability to fund a project or to take that information that an engineer is giving you and then explain that to a city council or something like that. And Melissa Marshall gives a fantastic presentation. She did it this past year at NCSEA called Science Not Communicated is Science Not Done. And she is basically the world champion of technical communication. And I was so fortunate to get to see her full presentation at NCSEA. But she has a lot of different resources that are available online that absolutely can help you be a better engineer and follow Amy's advice to strengthen your technical communication skills. I did see her presentation at Structures Congress last year. And I sat through a presentation shortly after that where it was two different presenters. One presenter took the time to implement her recommendations for PowerPoint and the other did not. And it was amazing to see the difference between the two. It was like the perfect test case. And so that is huge. One of the other things that you had mentioned was like the presentations and the phone calls and the verbal communication. You know, sometimes it's really easy to sit down. I use the term easy lightly. Sometimes it's easier to sit down and just brain dump and revise, 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 revise. It's not always easy to call up a client or give a presentation to somebody because you don't have the time and the resources to draft what you're verbally going to say. If that does happen, you know, preparing yourself for what you're going to say can be huge. Have, you know, 10 people. I've used my mom and I've used my aunt and uncle before a presentation and I've had them sit down and they are not engineers and I'll give the presentation to them and then I'll just have them say, okay, what didn't make sense to you? Just because I'm giving a presentation to other damn engineers doesn't mean they're necessarily going to understand my particular niche of the industry. And so practice, practice, practice is huge. I have also presented to both my wife, my dog, and my mom. And so I very (laughs) much champion this method of practice. I love it. I'm glad to know someone else does it too. I just wanted to riff off what you guys are saying. It's especially as you get farther into your structural engineering career or career in general, you'll start to realize how important that is because we are dealing with our clients and whoever we're working for, who we're communicating with, maybe it's our peers. But I mean, the whole point is to get that information across. And if it's for a client, that's how we're communicating. If they can't understand what we're doing, then it kind of feels like there's a loss of communication and they don't understand why they're paying for our services. But if we can communicate that in a clear way, in a technical way, but not overly technical, then it makes it a lot clearer to see the value that we provide as as structural engineers. Because if we're just spitting out numbers, the public doesn't know what we're doing. Even structural engineers don't know what we're doing if we're way too complicated, like what you were saying. So I just wanted to follow up on that really great points. And I also saw Melissa Marshall on the Structures Congress last year. That was really great presentation. So all these are skills that we can improve and you're not born with it. So there's definitely resources out there. So Amy, the first question I had that was related to a career, like you mentioned, it was a pretty niche industry. How would someone get into dam engineering? Because I know for me, all I had were the closest thing was a geotech earth dam. (laughs) There wasn't too much. It was kind of like a a retaining wall. That's the closest thing I came to. So for students that want to get into it, 
what are some of the resources or ways that they could get into this? You're not the only one. My real exposure was just we had family friends that were in the damn industry. And that is honestly how I got connected in. But there are two professional societies that focus on dams. So I'll put a little plug in for both of those. The first is the United States Society on Dams. And so that's USSD. And the other is ASDSO or the Association of State Dam Safety Officials. So those are two great resources. Professional societies as a whole are great resources, but those two individually are great resources for people that are interested in dams, whether that be from the structural perspective, the geotechnical perspective, hydrology, hydraulics. They have a lot of resources. The first step would be just go check out their website. And then, you know, if one of the conferences happens to pop up near you, the conferences have either a free or reduced price for students to attend and just highly recommend checking both of those out. That's awesome. That transitions right into my second question that I had related to career-related items. We mentioned your involvement in ASCE, SEI in your introduction. Can you talk about how uh, one can evolve their professional association participation beyond just being a member and how has that impacted your development and career? One of the best things I think people can do is do a little bit more than just attend meetings. A great place to start is just volunteering if they need somebody to work on the infrastructure report card or they need somebody to organize you know, the student scholarships. Maybe it's not your first choice, but it's a great way to get your foot in the door and to start networking and getting to know people. I started getting involved in SEI purely because the meetings were held in the conference room, the floor above where I worked. And so it was purely out of convenience. And then I volunteered to revamp the newsletter because it was in terrible condition. So that's kind of actually how I got started. My involvement in SEI is just I got working on the newsletter, I started communicating with people, and then in our local ASCE chapter, I volunteered to work on the dam section of the infrastructure report card. And all of these, you start to network and get to know people, and then other opportunities come up, and because people know you, they'll vouch for you, and then they'll ask you, are you interested in doing X, Y, or Z? And you've kind of positioned yourself to say yes or to say no, if it is something that you're interested in. I sit on the board of governors for SEI now, and it wasn't that long ago that I was revamping the newsletter. And it's all just because I said yes to something. And so I think, you know, volunteering, you don't necessarily have to go run for an officer position immediately if that's not right up your alley, but finding ways to jump into leadership roles is a great place to start. I love being involved in everything, which is sometimes a problem, and I'm getting better at saying no. But two years ago, when Structures Congress was hosted in Fort Worth, I joined the local planning committee because it seemed like something I was you know, really proud of my hometown, and I wanted to make sure that that event was everything it could be because I did a couple of things right, and I was passionate about giving back. Just even showing interest in contributing is the reason that someone said, hey, you should be on the National Committee for Structures Congress with SEI. And I'm thankful to be on, you know, serving a three-year term on that committee. And just the exposure and the broadening of your perspective of our industry when you are able to participate at a local level, a state level, a national level is 
profound. And I think it actually makes you a better professional because you've had exposure to things outside of your small little universe that you work in. So even if it doesn't directly impact, obviously it gives you a huge network to work with and you meet all these different people who can vouch for you and sponsor you and be an advocate for you when you're not in the room. Just the experience that you get and the way it can really open your mind to things outside of the bubble that you've worked in already is really impactful. I want to add on to that. The getting involved in professional societies gives you the opportunity, you know, circling back to communication skills. I mean, I'm sure while you were on the conference planning committee communicating with whether it be somebody at ASCE or somebody that's presenting, like you're having to communicate and that directly influences your communication skills at work. So that is a great opportunity to work on some of these skills that engineers aren't necessarily known for being great at, but giving you kind of a safety net of an environment to work on those skills and improving them, which directly improves your job performance. Absolutely. And it's in an informal setting. So it's not like you're giving a presentation to hundreds of people. You're maybe in a room with a committee of six to 10 other people. And the fact that you showed up and you've spent the time to be there, those leaders who are on the other side of the table are more willing to invest in you getting better and are likely to give you feedback and be mentors. Exactly. So I'm a huge fan of travel. I work for an international organization and I recently got to um, travel abroad to both Germany and Switzerland for a work trip. And I understand that you are quite a fan of travel yourself and you get to go a lot of places for work and also take time to travel for leisure. Do you want to share with us just kind of fun some of the travels that you've had, any of those that the work you do has afforded you? First of all, I want to say Germany is on my list, my very long list of places that I want to visit. So I'm a little <laughs> jealous that you got to go there for work. But you know, that is one of the things that I love about my job is dams are all over the country. And so I've had inspections just in the last year in Washington, in Arizona, in Montana. I mean, they're all over. And so I got to tack onto a site visit that I had in Butte, Montana last November, a weekend in Bozeman. And we went to the hot springs and checked out the Museum of the Rockies, which is the museum that Montana State does. And it was just like a little 24-hour trip, but it was so much fun in just a little town in Montana. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Two other trips that come to mind. Phoenix office every year does hike of the Grand Canyon. And so they hike from the South Rim down to Phantom Ranch, spend two nights and hike back out. And one of my best friends from college, somehow I convinced her to go with me. And we hiked in and spent the one day that we had in the canyon exploring and then hiking back out. And that was actually my first time to the Grand Canyon. And it was such an amazing way to see the Grand Canyon. It was just, it blew my mind. And I still look at photos from that trip and I'm just amazed. So if you ever get the opportunity to hike down to Phantom Ranch, highly recommend it. So that's one of them. And then one of the other ones that I got to do a couple years ago was I actually went to Cuba. And that's another one that I tell people, if you ever have the opportunity to go to Cuba, jump on it immediately. It was so unique because there wasn't a Starbucks on every corner and a McDonald's. Like It truly was untouched pretty much by American influence. And so you had Cuban food. And for the most part, most people don't even speak English. So I had to pull out my high school Spanish and do the best that I could to communicate. We did have a translator, which helped, um, but it was fun to bring the Spanish out. But Cuba is just such a unique country. 
And it was such a unique culture to get to experience. And the people were so friendly. I don't know what I was expecting, but it just blew all my expectations out of the water. I actually also went to Cuba. I went like two months after the borders opened in 2016. And I could not agree with you more. The food, the people, the scenery, how different different parts of the country are is just astounding. Comparing history books is kind of fun. I mean, the entire cultural experience was phenomenal. Next time you want to go, give me a call and we'll go together. Sounds good. I would love to go back. I was told about a little town that Hershey had actually built for sugarcane, and it looks very similar to some older towns in New England area. So that's on my list. So we can go check that out. I think that's why travel is so important, just because you get to see these different types of cultures and kind of like with professional societies, you get to see it really expands your your vision of not just the US, but also the whole world and where different types of people come from. Like I went to Brazil and the Philippines, and those are the types of countries that are still developing. But kind of like what you said too, is you really get a sense of the people. Like they were just super friendly, super happy, even though they didn't even have our type of infrastructure. It was kind of really cool to see that type of difference, that cultural experience. I think that's pretty cool how you combine your work life balance, <laughs> like yes. in- integration, integration. There we go. And that, that kind of leads into my last question for you is, um, so you have this balance of technical work and also you manage to squeeze in time for some leisurely activities and professional organization work. Amy, do you have an overall life or career philosophy you can share with us, or maybe just some general career advice for our listeners based on what you've been through to date? I don't have any grandiose, super concise statement that anyone can go forth and put into practice. There are a couple things that I do want to share, um, is that the balance ebbs and flows. The balance that I had you know, five years ago compared to what I have now looks so vastly different. And that is okay. You're not always have this perfect, whether it be 50-50 balance or 33-33-33 balance, that things are going to ebb and flow. And knowing where to put your priorities just kind of comes with the experience part of it. You guys have mentioned the uh, learning to say no. This comes up quite commonly. I also struggle with learning to say no. But one of the things that I've really had to work on myself is recognizing when I'm about to burn out and stepping back because I can't say no to things, that it's better to step back before you are fully burnt out than just burning out and making things miserable for everyone else. One of the other things is setting goals is huge. And I'm a huge fan of setting goals and aiming for them, but also being flexible with those goals. A lot of the opportunities that I've had in my career, you know, had I stuck to my specific goals and the plan of attack that I had for those goals, I probably would not be where I am right now because I wouldn't have been flexible. But the flexibility has allowed me to grow my career, to grow, you know, the skills that I have in my toolbox because I've been flexible and been open to new opportunities. The last thing I wanted to share is that it's okay to fail. This was something I was always a straight A student in high school and college. And so failure for me was never really an option. It was just a self-imposed thing. And I actually ended up failing the PE two times before I passed. And for me, that was a huge awakening of like, 
could I even be an engineer? Like I failed the PE and failure happens and it's not a direct result of who you are, but you've just got to pick yourself up, readjust and go attack it again. That failure is going to happen and it's not the end of the world, but it's how you respond to it. That is what really makes you who you are. I actually do a lot of coaching of young EITs who are pursuing their PE and when they're preparing for the exam, I kind of give them a cheat sheet of please try not to stress. And if you don't pass the first time, it's okay. And I think a lot of us, because we were the structural engineering industry in particular has a lot of sharp people who were straight A students throughout their education. And it's hard for us to either A, know our limits and say no, which I know we both said we're working on. We can start a support group and the idea of failure. And I think once you have that first failure, it's maybe almost a relief. It's a shock at first and it's, you know, your entire world is crumbling and falling apart, but coming back from that and the experience of learning that it's okay to get it on the second try, or, you know, it's okay that I just learned from that experience is real growth opportunity. And to me, that is actually one of the first signs of maturity in a young professional. Oh, I fully agree. After I failed the second time, I had this grand plan of like quitting my job, becoming a mountain bum and growing dreadlocks because I was just so (laughs) frustrated. I had to learn that it was not a direct reflection of me. It is a standardized test. And I do not do the specific structural engineering that the exam is testing on. And I am in full support of, you know, sharing the fact that I failed and it is okay. The world keeps spinning and I am still a great engineer. And that does not define me. You're my hero. Well, thank you. I wish more people accepted that and had that same mindset. That's very healthy. Amy, it has been such a pleasure having you on the Structural Engineering Channel podcast. I have my fingers crossed right now, but tell me, are we going to see you at Structures Congress in St. Louis? Yes, I will be there. Matt and I will also be there. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. And hopefully we will see you at the launch of the Structural Engineering uh, Walking Tour app of St. Louis that SEI is sponsoring that Sunday evening. I look forward to it. Safe travels to both of you as we head to St. Louis and stay healthy. Absolutely. All right. I look forward to seeing you both there. Awesome. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with Amy Korn today. I know she really had some great insights on dam engineering as well as some great career advice to give as well. If you want to learn more about Amy or want to meet her in person, you can track her down at SEI Structures Congress in St. Louis the first weekend in April, where Matt and I will also be. For more information about what Amy spoke about today, you can also find links in today's episode's show notes. We hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode which is episode number 21, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you all the best in your structural engineering endeavors.